0: Today we're talking about a difficult passage of Scripture. Um, I think there actually aren't that many really difficult passages, but this one is particularly troubling. Um, I've read it a couple dozen times this past week um, and even weeks prior, um, and I still um, wrestle a lot with what it says. And one of the things that I talked about in our Listen, Ask, Tell is uh, it's okay if someone asks you a question about something and you say, I don't know. And so I think this is an appropriate time to just preface this sermon that a lot of a lot of the meanings of this passage, I don't know. I do not know. I do not know <clears throat> exactly how to interpret it. There are some sentences that um, I, I just really have no idea. Um, and then even when it comes to choosing between a couple options of how to interpret it, if you read commentaries about, um, I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know how to pick. Um, and part of what is difficult for me, or let me, just, let me just express first what I feel when I look at this passage, and I'm scared. Okay? I, I feel scared, and I feel scared on a couple levels. I feel scared um, because I, I, I think it foretells some scary events, some difficult and challenging events, number one, um, and then number two, the other reason that I'm scared is because I have to decide how to talk about it as a pastor, and I feel pressure to be able to have some conclusive answer to give to you guys. And so I'm scared on a couple levels. And then part of it, too, just gets me thinking, like, why did Jesus have to talk about this? Like, why was it so important for him to bring this up? And so let me give you a story. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to come back to this story later on. Um, But let me give you a story. And I think I've told um, in terms of sometimes it's better just not to know what's going to happen. Um, About five years ago, I went hang gliding in Rio de Janeiro. And the instructor I was paired with to go hang gliding, um, he just gave me one instruction. He said, when, you, when I give you the signal, you're just going to run as fast as you can. That's all, that's all you need to know. You just, when I tell you to, you need to run, you just, you just need to book it. And you just need to do that for about five seconds. Um, and he did not give me any further instructions. There were no other instructions. He didn't tell me anything I was supposed to do once I got in the air. Um, and so what happened is I, I did it and I ran as fast as I could and I was, I was absolutely terrified. I was absolutely terrified the whole time. And then he gave me a whole bunch of instructions, new instructions once we got into the air about how I'm supposed to lean my body, what I'm supposed to do, because we're, 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 we're tied together, right? The instructor and I are tied together. We, we ran together and we we're tied together. And it made complete sense for why he only gave me that instruction, because if you don't make it off the ramp fast enough, you fall off the cliff, <laughs> okay? You fall off the cliff and I guess you could die. I he didn't. I didn't. I asked him what happens to people um, if you don't run fast enough, and he said it's not good. But he didn't want to say that you're going to die. Uh, but I think that's what—that's I mean, that's the implication, because you're you're running. You're literally running off the side of a cliff. And so I really appreciate that he only gave me one thing that I'm supposed to do, and he didn't have me worry about anything else. And, I, and sometimes I wonder when we come to this passage, Jesus, just tell me what I need to know and don't tell me anything else because I just need to make it off the cliff, right? So there's a sense when you read some of these things, don't tell me what happens after I go off the cliff. Just make sure I run fast enough to get through it. But, but Jesus doesn't do that, okay? Jesus tells us a whole bunch of stuff here that sometimes... I sense, I would rather not know. But we're going to look at it today and we're going to try to figure out what, you know, what are the reasons why Jesus wanted to communicate this, number one, and number two, how does it benefit us today? How is, it, how is it beneficial for us to know this about what's going to happen? Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Mark chapter 13. And I'm going to be reading it in chunks. We're going to be, re- we're going to be finishing in verse 23. And I know the... Um, this, this is called the Olivet Discourse and extends throughout the entire um, chapter 13, uh, but we're only going to talk about to verse 23, and then we'll pick up the rest of it next week. Okay? And so Mark 13:1 through 8, I'm going to look at that chunk first. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Because that's the first section. And I want to give you a little bit of context. We are in the last week of Jesus's life. And in fact, we're in those last couple of days of Jesus's life. And up until this point, there's been um, everything that's taken place so far since chapter 11 in the last week of Jesus's life has been at the Jerusalem temple. And Jesus has had encounters with Pharisees, with scribes, with the chief priests. um, And they have essentially made uh, accusations or questioned him in order to trap him. And Jesus has responded beautifully each time. And so in context, right, we're still in the temple and now we're departing from the temple and in, in departing it, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a uh, sense of how magnificent this temple was. This is not the first Jerusalem temple. That temple was destroyed in 586 BC. This is what's called a Herod's temple that was being built, that was still being built um, as Jesus was speaking about it. Um, the entire temple campus, you could say, or facility, not campus, facility, whatever. The entire temple spanned 36 acres. Right, so the the whole area was quite large in the city of Jerusalem, and then the main temple structure itself was 150 feet tall, which maybe today is not that remarkable, but in that time dominated the skyscape. Right, that's the only thing that the structure that's even remotely that high, Um, and so you have this that dominating the skyline, and then the the top of it was gilded in gold, so it reflected the sunlight really brightly. And uh, and then you'll notice that Jesus sits down opposite the temple. So the whole time he's giving this talk about the destruction of the temple, it's behind him and everyone can see it. Um, And so this was the most magnificent uh, building and structure probably that anyone had been exposed to, that anyone knew around in the ancient Near East. And so when Jesus is talking about it, not only is it beautiful structurally, it's also the center of Jewish religious life. Because Jews from all over would make a pilgrimage during, during Passover to um, celebrate, to be able to celebrate uh, and, and enjoy and be close to God during that time. Um, and so um, I've mentioned before, you know, we've talked about uh, the temple as being like free Wi-Fi, right? This is the place where God, where you people have access and receive access to God. And so not only is it structurally beautiful, but it represents something spiritual, something important, um, both ethnically and religiously and socially for the people of Israel, for the Jews. Now, the next thing I want to say, as, as uh, Jesus talks about this that makes this comment, um, that there's two different kinds of prophecy, because he's making a prophecy. There is a foretelling, and there's foretelling. Okay, foretelling is to tell about something, is is, it means to publicize, it means to broadcast, it means to expose. And so when the, the type of prophecy we usually think about is foretelling, which is telling the future, but forth-telling is also one type of prophecy where you're just exposing or revealing something that's happening today. Okay? And Jesus does that frequently. In fact, you can probably argue um, forth-telling is more common as far as prophecy than foretelling. Um, but in this case, when someone makes this comment about wonderful stones and wonderful buildings, Jesus is foretelling. Right? So in verse 2 he says, You see these great buildings? Not one stone is gonna be left. It's all gonna be thrown down. And the question is, how does that, how has that is that has that been fulfilled, and how has it been fulfilled? And so throughout this text, we're gonna look at what's been fulfilled, what hasn't been fulfilled, how do we understand it? And so let me give kind of an example of how I think about interpreting scripture. When whenever you read the Bible, you are overhearing a conversation, okay? You're overhearing a conversation. And every, time, and every time you overhear a conversation, it's a little bit dangerous because you can uh, miss the context. I've, I've had very many frequent insta- instances where um, someone has overheard a conversation and told me <laughs> afterwards that they heard a rumor about someone being with someone else like romantically or linked or something like that, and they missed, they weren't actually, they overheard a conversation, they didn't hear the whole context. And you know that can be a very dangerous thing. So I just want to caution you as you come to this text that we need to make sure we recognize who is this conversation with. Okay, and the first thing I want you to notice is that it's not even all the disciples. It's not, it's not a sermon. It's not to all the disciples. It's only to four, four of them. It's with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. By the way, sorry, the, the overall prediction about the temple being destroyed, Jesus, uh, Jesus says uh, you know, that it's going to go away but the four are the ones who ask him privately. Okay, and I want you to notice, it's first of all, it's Peter, James, and John, and they are part of Jesus's inner circle. They're the ones that Jesus spent the most time with, okay? And they're the ones that also experienced the transfiguration. And then somehow Andrew gets in there. I'm not really sure how he gets in there. He just kind of sneaks in. Maybe he was like, oh, those guys are going away. I want to know what's going on too. But you have these select four who ask Jesus the question, what, when will these things be? And what will the sign when all this comes about to be accomplished? And I think that's important because let's say you're listening to someone having a conversation. You're at Panera. You're sitting in your uh, cube, whatever they call those. You're sitting at a table. um, And at a neighboring table, you overhear um, a group of people talking about a meteor hitting the earth. Right? A meteor hitting the earth. And then kind of your question as you're listening to this is, how big is the meteor And of course, when is it going to happen, right? Those are the kind of questions you're going to be asking. And that's exactly what um, these four disciples want to know from Jesus and then his response, right? And he says to them, make sure no one leads you astray, right? And, And so the first principle of interpreting this conversation is recognizing that Jesus is talking to a select group of his disciples, Um, And now he says, make sure no one leads you astray because there's going to be false teachers. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then there's wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So the first thing Jesus says is be careful for false teachers, which is consistent with the rest of the New Testament, because throughout the New Testament, you have epistles saying you need to be aware of false doctrine and false teaching. And that was true, that's true universally, but it's particularly true for the first century when the church was growing. So Jesus gives that admonition. And second thing, he talks about wars, and he says, you know, it's common, wars are going to happen, you're going to hear rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, that's not the sign. Okay, and so today, a lot of times, uh, Christians will make, and, and we view this, we view this section of scripture as dealing with the end times, but I want to note, first of all, that uh, the primary emphasis that Jesus is talking about that the disciples have asked about is when will the temple be destroyed? Okay, so that's the topic at hand. So we need to keep that, that as the topic. And so when it comes to the destruction of the temple, it's not about wars, but it's close. Okay, wars means it's close. The second thing, um, it says in verse eight, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are at the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, so he gives this sense that there's going to be natural disaster. And these natural disasters have happened throughout all of history. Um, Earthquakes and famine and beginning of the birth pains. And so then the question is, has this come true? Has this been fulfilled? And the answer is yes. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD, right? The temple was destroyed in the year 70. Um, There was a revolt of the Jews in the year 66. So four years prior to the temple being destroyed, um, the Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire. And then Rome sent a general, Titus, to come and uh, invade Israel and then take over Jerusalem and in the process completely destroyed the temple. This is Herod's temple. So that temple was completely destroyed in 70 AD and all the things that, what, what Jesus is saying about the temple being destroyed, it happened. Okay, it happened. Now, then the question is, how, do, how are we to understand the destruction of the temple? Because oftentimes, when Jesus makes a statement about something physical, it's often accompanied by something spiritual. And I think that's a really important idea. Like when Jesus heals um, the, the paralytic who gets, uh, who's, who's lowered down through the roof, Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he heals the man and has him take up his mat and walk. So every time Jesus does something physical or even predicts something physical, there's always something spiritual that it's accompanied by. And so the destruction of the temple, yes, it happens physically because he says, look, those, temple, those stones are going to be overturned. And yet what Jesus is saying is also something bigger, right? And that goes with everything he's been doing with the temple when he cleared out the temple. Okay. What Jesus is saying is he's going to usher in a new way of relating to God. And the destruction of the temple means the old way, the way that Jews related to God through the temple was going to be destroyed. Okay, so there's a significance in the physical happening. It represents something spiritual. It has a spiritual significance. And most institutions, every institution does not die easily. And this one, Jesus is saying, does, will not die easily. And he compares it to something specific. He's like, this is the beginning of birth pains. When, when you want something new to happen, there is labor, and that labor is accompanied by pain. And so he's talking about a reality of the spiritual life that when we're, bring, when we're ushering in something new, when God wants to break through in some way, there is often, there's, there's pain. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that you only receive life if you die first. And so Jesus is giving us a spiritual truth here that in order for birth to happen, something has to die. That's a spiritual principle that he's offering us. In order for the temple to be destroyed, there's going to be birth pains that are associated with it. And so the next section is going to be going to talk about those things. This is verse nine. I'm going to read nine through 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so the emphasis here is notice that in verse 9, and this is going to be repeated twice in this passage, it says, be on your guard. And then he talks about uh, being delivered over to councils, to synagogues, standing before governors and kings to bear witness before them. And if you were reading this and then subsequently read the book of Acts, it sounds exactly like what the apostles, what Peter, James, and John experience in the first century. This this almost perfectly describes what they go through and the apostle Paul. It perfectly describes what they go through in terms of persecution, in terms of the gospel spreading, um, both among Jews and also among Gentiles. So it, it perfectly describes the persecution that's going to be happening and the spread of the Christian church in the first century. And so what does that mean? It really sounds like what Jesus is addressing here is these four disciples and what they're going to go through, and really all those present generation of disciples, okay? And then he talks about, and, but there's a strange thing in verse 10 that we, we, do, we need to explain if we're, going to make, if we're going to try to understand how this is talking just to the disciples, and it says, "...and the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations." The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And it sounds like that all this is going to happen once the gospel is proclaimed to all the nations, to all the Gentiles. And that may be true, but at that time, what people understood as civilization um, wasn't a big span of the earth, okay? It's actually a very limited kind of area of focus. So for the gospel to be preached to all nations at that time, um, it wasn't, wasn't very far, at least to our understanding, right? It didn't include America, right? Or the Americas. Um, and so it's possible for that to be true, even though it didn't expand to what we would understand as the globe, because their understanding of all nations was, was their immediate proximity. Um, and, so, and then it talks about in verse 11, and when it, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's confident. He's expressing assurance that when you experience persecution, when these disciples experience persecution, that the Holy Spirit will be speaking through them, which again is exactly what the book of Acts is describing. That's the acts of the Holy Spirit. And so that also has been fulfilled. Um, and then in verse 12 and 13, brother will deliver brother over to death and father over to his child, father, his child, and children will rise against parents. What's, what is this talking about? It's talking about people selling each other out because of the faith, okay? And what happens is um, in that first century, there's all kinds of persecution of the Christian church, both from, the, from Jews, but also from the Roman Empire. And it was mainly scattered and specific to a particular governor. Um, and yet during that time, and then also later on, there were people who would decide, they would apostatize, which means they would decide to leave their faith in order to save their own life. And they'd also turn in their family members to authorities because they're Christians, okay? And so let me just pause for a second and, and recognize that... Uh, we don't experience that today in this country. In fact, the United States was founded on this principle of religious liberty, of religious freedom. And so we, in, 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 we get tremendous freedom to be able to practice this and not face, not experience persecution the way that Jesus is describing here. And yet, if we were to interpret this scripture widely, because a lot of it has been uh, fulfilled we also recognize that there is persecution that exists today. And on November 6th during service, we're going to be having an um, extended prayer time um, to pray for the persecuted church. And for those of you who are not familiar, um, Chinard is going to share a little bit about things that have been happening in, in Armenia. Okay, and I'll, I'll give, I'm going to give a little bit of a advanced uh, like news about it, um, but you'll get to hear it again. Because if you're like me, you'll need to hear it like seven times before it kind of gets through to you. Um, but there was a genocide in Armenia in 1915 by the Turks, okay, where millions of Armenians were killed, um, and they were persecuted for their faith. Um, and then now, even today, there's still animosity between Turks, or I, I forgot the name that she used. She'll, she'll, she'll tell, what's the name for the? As, Azerbaijan. So there's a, um, a former Soviet republic, I think it's called. It's former Soviet republic, Azerbaijan, that has um, invaded, even as recently as two months ago, um, Armenia, a section of Armenia, and, and killed people. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is territorial, but a lot of that's because these Azerbaijan and Turkey are these Muslim nations that are surrounding Armenia, which is primarily Christian. Um, and these Christians are experiencing tremendous persecution. And so persecution is alive and well today. And just because we don't experience it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And what is it a sign of? Well, uh, this text is primarily addressing Jesus and his, and his disciples for that time period, for that first century. And yet what we see is as we overhear that conversation, there are ripple effects out of that that affect us today, that affect this world, even though we may not be fully aware of it. And so what, it, what does it mean to be on your guard? It is to expect turmoil and to expect persecution. At the, um, maybe a, a couple months ago, I preached a sermon that as Jesus' disciples were going out, um, they were facing resistance. This was from the Jews who end up, and the, and the Roman, and the Herod, who ended up uh, chopping off John the Baptist's head. As a Christian, when you preach the gospel, you can expect resistance. And what Jesus is saying is, as part of the destruction of the temple, as part of the birth pains, you can expect resistance. So even though the temple has now been destroyed, it doesn't mean resistance is over. As long as we live in this broken world, preaching the gospel continues to be important because one of the things it talks about is being saved. And it's not clear exactly from the text whether being saved here, like in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not exactly clear if it means um, physical salvation, like your life will be saved, but I have to imagine that it could be both. It's physical salvation as well as spiritual salvation. It's to be saved from hell. Okay? And so what it means is, if we, as we follow Jesus, there will be temptations for us to apostatize, to walk away from our faith. And certain in the last two years, especially during COVID, um, many Christians have walked away from the faith. They didn't need threat of death to walk away from the faith. Okay? Um, and yet, what Jesus is saying, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Because hell is a reality. These events are a reality. Death is a reality. And Jesus' return is also a reality, which is what we're going to get to. So let me continue reading. This is Mark thirteen fourteen. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Okay, so... There's a lot happening in here. One thing I just want you to notice is there are some very specific instructions. In fact, the one that always stands out to me, um, because this is relevant to our church, is there's a last for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants. Right? It's going to be bad for those who are nursing infants. Right? Um, And then it says, pray that it may not happen in winter. All of this, these very specific instructions, lead me to believe, okay, as probably a good portion of scholars that this has been already fulfilled, that this was specific to the generation of these disciples, right? Um, and, it, and it was associated with the destruction of the temple and with, with Titus, who was standing in the temple. He is the abomination of desolation. So let's talk about that term. Abomination of desolation, that reference comes from Daniel nine twenty seven, which is one of the book's... Um, of the Bible that talks about apocalypse, about the end times, and so there's clear there is a connection. So when someone uses that word, it's not random, right? Abomination of desolation. It's not like a random term someone just throws out there. Um, Jesus recognized that using that term would connect to Daniel, okay, to the book of Daniel. And so when he's talking about that, abomination means something that's despicable, that's evil. Um, And oftentimes when it's used throughout the scriptures, it describes idolatry, something that's going against God. And certainly um, a Roman general who's standing in the temple um, to destroy it would represent someone who's standing against God. And so this would have been understood as you need to flee. And during that occupation, this invasion of Jerusalem, um, the historian Josephus um, wrote down that about a million Jews died in that conflict. Um, And so that would be something worth fleeing Judea, Judea over. Um, and who, who's in the house, but not go down. You got to leave as fast as you can. Don't take anything with you. If you're in the field, don't turn back and get your cloak. And then it's bad for those who are pregnant and nursing infants, right? So in the context of the temple being destroyed, this warning makes sense. And, and yet again, um, scholars have disagreement this, that this also is a reference to Jesus's return. Um, but the way I read this is that this has also been fulfilled. Okay, this has been fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. Um, In 19, it says, for in those days there'll be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So it's talking about something unique that's happening. And again, that's maybe one reason why people don't think it's been fulfilled because it wasn't that bad. And yet it's easy to look in hindsight and be like, oh yeah, it wasn't that bad because there's worse things that happened. Yet it was terrible. Um, Verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. Okay, what's the idea there? The longer that this time of tribulation extends, the more people that will be killed, right? Um, Including the elect or those who are perishing. Um, And so what God did out of his mercy was shorten this time of tribulation. And so that's what verse 20 is talking about. And then again, in verse 21 and 22, just as he warned before, he's warning about false Christs and false prophets. Okay, um, and so that kind of covers this first section, this verses one through 23. Um, next week, we're gonna talk about the rest of this passage. Um, and again, the challenge is, how do we tell what's been fulfilled and what hasn't? And again, a lot of this is difficult for me to interpret. I, I, I don't know exactly how. One of the things that's gonna come up later um, in a later, later part of this section is that Jesus says, and this present generation, the generation I'm talking to will not pass away until these words are fulfilled. And of course, then the question goes, what generation does he mean? And the the approach that I'm taking today is that these have been fulfilled, that Jesus was talking to those four disciples, and these words were fulfilled in their generation, like that span of 40 years. Jesus was talking to these things in about 33 AD. Um, The temple was destroyed in 70, so it was about within a generation, within 40 years, that his words were fulfilled. Okay, so... I kind of gave you a blast of what I think about this passage. You probably still have a whole bunch of other questions. Um, I'm happy to entertain those questions during our sharing time. I'll do my best. I'll I'll probably say I don't know. I'll give you some options. Um, I'm also happy to discuss with you afterwards if you have disagreement with me. Um, But now I want to get back to the question of um, what does this leave us with? What does it mean to be on our guard? Now, I want us to think about that there's what the role of fear is. And when I think about fear, like even when I was um, doing the hang gliding, we'll get back to my hang gliding story. When I was hang gliding in Rio, I was deeply, deeply afraid. And yet when we were able to get in the air, um, there was this exhilaration that was absolutely incredible. And part of what made that exhilaration possible is because I was so afraid just a few seconds prior. In fact, I was probably, I was afraid the entire time. I was afraid the entire time. And so if you think about the moments in your life where you experience the greatest exhilaration, um, I bet there's also a sense of fear that accompanied them. Okay, I bet there's a sense of fear. And again, I'm not saying um, the worst times in your life may also have fear as well, right? And, and this, this sense of fear that's overwhelming. But I want you to recognize that the purpose of what Jesus is saying is that there's some things that you're supposed to be afraid of. It's actually good and important to be afraid of. Like one of the things as we were um, raising our kids is we wanted to give them a fear of um, cars. Like when you're crossing a street, you need to have a healthy fear of cars, okay? Because they can kill you. You need to have an appropriate fear of them. And I believe what Jesus is doing is he's he's helping us have an appropriate fear. He doesn't want us to be controlled by the fear. He doesn't want us to be dominated by, by, by fear, but he wants us to have an appropriate fear of the reality of what's going to happen, the reality of hell, the reality of judgment, the reality of death. And he wants us to recognize that in, in the midst of turmoil and nations against nations and persecutions, that he is king. And that later we're going to see that he, and he is coming back as the king and he's going to reign. And so if there is a time to get right with the king, it is right now. It is to get right with him now. And so to be on guard, what it means then is to recognize, is to get right with the king and to look for him and to expect him and to recognize even as all these other kings compete for power, that the final and rightful king is still reigning and will return. And so why then did he tell us all about this? And, And why did he have to give us this information? Well, running down a ramp is a five second sprint. But living a life as a follower of Jesus is a marathon. And so when you're in a marathon, you need to be aware that there's different stages of the race. Okay, now I'm, I'm totally talking out of my, you know, non-experience, right? Because I've never run a marathon. But from what I understand, okay, from what I understand about um, a marathon is that there are different stages. There are different um, levels of pain that you're going to experience. And when you approach the halfway mark, that's actually not the halfway point in terms of your pain, <laughs> Okay, the halfway point in terms of your pain is probably like the last mile, okay? Because the last mile is often the most painful. And if you've ever worked on a, a long project um, or, you know, for me, sometimes a sermon, like 90% is halfway done. The last 10% is like, that's where all the pain is, okay? Like, keep this one, right? The last 10% is where all the pain is. And what Jesus is saying is you just need to be prepared that the last times, the things when, um, before things get better, things are going to be really bad. And you need to be prepared for that. Okay? And here, let me give you one more reason that I think Jesus is um, telling us this and why my gliding instructor didn't. He didn't know me from anyone. He didn't know me from Harry, okay? Um, he, that, the gliding instructor had met me for five minutes before he's going to run down a ramp with me, <laughs> okay? And so it was really important because he doesn't know me to just give me the thing that I needed to, to understand, But Jesus had spent three years with his disciples and he had spent all this time with his inner circle and he considered his disciples just as he considers you as a follower of Jesus. He considered them his friends. And when you're friends with someone, you want them to know what's going to happen. And if there is something serious that's going to happen in the future that they need to be prepared for, you want to share that with them. And so Jesus is sharing his heart and he's even sharing as we're going to see the things that he doesn't know. But he is sharing his heart with his disciples, and he wants us to know his heart today. And so for us, it's to know his heart and to recognize the most important thing we can do is to get right with him. And to be right with him means to believe the gospel. And today, what we're going to practice in our, la- in our Listen, Ask, Tell class is to share the gospel through one's testimony. And I love what Jenna shared about God peeling back layers because that's what he does with us. He gets to our heart. And so let me, let me give you the gospel in about 15 seconds. The life, death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and return of Jesus mean that death has been defeated and we've been set free from the bondage of sin. We now have the forgiveness of sin through everything he accomplished. We have been welcomed in to a new family, a new set of relationships. The gospel doesn't just save us, it also sanctifies us. We're clean and we're made holy because of what Jesus has done. And when Jesus returns, he will wipe every tear away and right every wrong and bring his people to the banquet table, to the wedding feast. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. It's not just a past event It has an ongoing effect in our life. And we embrace death each day. We pick up our cross and walk with him and then experience new life. So the question that we're going to share about today is what gives you hope in the midst of turmoil? What gives gives you hope in the midst of turmoil? And so let me just share a closing story um, I, I've shared earlier that sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep. I just have, I have a panic attack, essentially, right? Um, and that happened this morning. Um, and it was partly about the sermon. But, you know, sometimes you have a panic attack and you just—you don't have like this like, uh, screen readout that goes, this is why you're having a panic attack, right? So I didn't know that it was exactly about the sermon. I just know that I felt like with the walls closing in on me, um, I was just always feel suffocated in those moments. Um, and I think for a lot of those times, I'm just incredibly scared. I think when I have a panic attack, I'm just incredibly, incredibly scared. But here's one thing that I don't feel. One thing I don't feel is I don't feel alone. And the reason I don't feel alone is a couple things. One, when I shared this the first time, a number of you came up to me and said, you know, I experienced, you told me about your own experience having trouble sleeping or experiencing panic attacks. And so, and a lot of the stories, frankly, were just worse than mine. Okay. And so whenever I experienced it, I'm like, man, you know what? This is just a taste of what so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so experiences, you know? And I'm like, I am not alone. God has brought, up, God has somehow, in this brokenness of this world, God has allowed me to have a glimpse that other people experience something similar. And then most of all, I have hope because God is so patient with me. Because you know what's so hard in those moments of turmoil? I just want it to be over. I want to do anything to fix it, like, instantly, you know? I want it to go away. And the more I try to fix it and make it go away, the worse it gets. And so now I'm just like, God, you are so patient with me. This is not a surprise to you. You, have, you, ex, you, you talk about turmoil, um, and you talk about, I mean, you recognize panic, and I just can be patient with myself in this moment. I believe the gospel. I just preach that over myself. And again, it doesn't go away instantly. I'm just, I just try to be patient. Um, so that's part of what I believe means to being on guard. Let's pray together. <sighs> Father God, thank you for this disturbing passage that gives us a picture of both future and past. But Lord, would we not view this um, as as kind of what Jenna said earlier, that it's not just a, a history book. This is not just to give us history. This is to give us encouragement that you want to speak your heart over us and that you want us to experience an appropriate fear about the future and to get right with you. And so, Lord, would we be aware of the turmoil that exists in our world and even in our hearts? And, God, in those moments of turmoil, would we find hope in you, that we are not alone, that we don't have to be in bondage to fear, that you love us and have given your son for us. In Jesus' name, amen.